This is Classic Lutheran Preaching on KNNA LP 95.7, Lincoln, Nebraska. This is Pastor John Schmidt with an abridged presentation of Martin Luther's sermon for the 10th Sunday after Trinity. This is from the John Nicholas Lenker Collection, published in 1905 and reissued by Baker Bookhouse in 1983. The scripture text for this sermon is Luke 19, beginning at verse 41. And when Jesus drew nigh, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known in this day, even thou, the things which belong unto peace, but now they are hid from thy eyes. For the days shall come upon thee, when thine enemies shall cast up a bank about thee, and come past thee around, and keep thee in on every side, and shall dash thee to the ground and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And he entered into the temple, and began to cast them out that sold, saying unto them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people sought to destroy him. And they could not find what they might do, for the people all hung upon him, listening. Thus far our text. This gospel presents that which took place on Palm Sunday when Christ rode into Jerusalem. On this occasion he preached two or three days in the temple, which was more than he ever did before at one time. The sum and substance of this gospel is that Christ grieves and laments over the afflictions of those who despise God's word. Now you have often heard what the word of God is, what it brings us, and what kind of scholars it has. Of all this nothing is said here, only the punishment and distress which shall come upon the Jews because they would not recognize the time of their visitation are here described. And let us well consider this, because the time of their visitation also deeply concerns us. If they are punished who do not know the time of their visitation, what will be done to those who maliciously persecute, blaspheme, and disgrace the gospel and the word of God? However, here he only speaks of those who do not know it. There are two methods of preaching against the despisers of God's word. The first is by threats, as Christ threatens them in Matthew 11. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which were done in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, shalt thou be exalted unto heaven? Thou shalt go down unto hell. For if the mighty works had been done in Sodom, which were done in thee, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. With these threatening words he would frighten them to their senses, and not to cast to the winds the word which God sends them. The other method the Lord gives here, when he weeps and shows his sympathy for the poor blinded people, and rebukes and threatens them, not as the hardened and stubbornly blind, but when he melts in love and compassion over his enemies, and with great heart-rending pity and cries, he tells them what shall befall them, which he would gladly prevent, but all is in vain. In the passage just quoted from Matthew 11, where he rebukes them, he does not treat them in love, but in the severity of faith. However, here it is all sincere love and mercy. This is worthy of our consideration. 
First, as he approaches the city, they went before and followed him with songs of great joy, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And they spread their garments in the way and cut branches from the trees and strewed them in the way. The whole scene was most glorious. But in the midst of all this joy, he begins to weep. He permits all the world to be joyful while he himself was bowed with grief when he beheld the city and said, If thou hadst known in this day even thou the things that belong unto peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. As though he would say, Oh, if you only knew what belongs to your peace, that you might not be destroyed, but be preserved with both temporal and eternal peace, you would yet this day consider and redeem the time. And now it is high time for you to know what it is for your highest welfare, but you are blind and will neglect the opportunity, until there shall be neither help nor counsel, as though to say, here you stand, firmly built, and within you are strong and mighty men, who, secure and happy, think there is no danger. Yet about forty years more, and you shall be utterly destroyed. The Lord plainly says this in these words, For the days shall come upon thee, when thy enemies shall cast up a bank about thee, and compass thee around, and keep thee in on every side, and shall dash thee to the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation. But the Jews were stubborn, and depended on God's promises, which they thought meant nothing else than that they would continue forever. They were secure and vainly thought, God will not do such things to us. We own the temple. Here God himself dwells. Besides, we have mighty men, money, and treasures enough to defy all our enemies. For even the Romans and the emperor, after he had conquered the city, confessed that the city was so well and firmly built that it would have been impossible to take it had God not especially willed it. Therefore they trusted in their own glory and built their confidence on a false delusion which finally deceived them. The Lord, however, saw deeper into the future than they when he said, O Jerusalem, if thou hadst known what I know, thou wouldst seek thy peace. Peace in the scriptures means when all things go well with us. You now think you have pleasant days, but if you knew how your enemies will encamp round about you, compass you about and hedge you in on every side, crush you to the ground and demolish all your beautiful buildings, and leave not one stone upon another, you would eagerly accept the word which brings to you the solid peace and every blessing. God caused his threats to be executed even thus, that the city was besieged at the time of the Passover festival, when the Jews were assembled within the walls of Jerusalem from every land, and as the historian Josephus writes, there were together at that time about three million people. This was an enormous multitude. Only one hundred thousand people would have been enough to crowd the city. But all this great multitude God in his wrath intended to bake, melt, and weld together into one mass of ruin. Yet the apostles and Christians were all out of the city. They had withdrawn into the land of Herod, Samaria, Galilee, and were scattered among the heathen. Thus God separated and saved the good grain, and poured the chaff into one place. There was such an immense multitude of Jews present, that they were sufficient to devour a whole kingdom, to say nothing of only one city. They also fell into such distress and famine, that they devoured everything and had nothing left until they were at last compelled to eat their leather bowstrings, shoe latchets, and shoe leather. And finally mothers, moved by their distress, butchered their own children, which the soldiers snatched from them, 
for they smelt the odor of the boiling meat through the squares of the city. They used dove's dung for salt, which commanded a high price. In short, there were distress and bloodshed enough to melt a rock to tears, so that no one could have believed that God's wrath could be so horrible and that he would so unmercifully martyr a people. The buildings and the streets were piled full of the dead, who perished from starvation, and yet the Jews were so raging that they defied God and refused to yield, until the emperor was compelled to use force and capture the city, when they could no longer maintain their ground. But as some Jews were such rogues as to swallow their money, so that it would not be taken from them, the soldiers thought that they all had swallowed their money, therefore they cut them open by the thousands, hunting for it. The slaughter and destruction were so great that even the heathen were moved to compassion, and the emperor was forced to give orders no longer to destroy them, but to take them prisoners and sell them as slaves. The Jews then became so cheap that thirty were sold for a penny, and thus they were scattered throughout the whole world, and were everywhere despised as the vilest people on earth, and thus they were everywhere regarded as the present day, everywhere dispersed and without a city or a country of their own, and they can never meet again as they vainly believe to establish their priesthood and kingdom. Thus God avenged the death of Christ and all his prophets, and paid them back because they knew not the day of their visitation. And so Christ admonishes us with tears to know our salvation and accept his visitation, that the calamity may not follow which will surely come upon those who do not accept it, who are secure, until swift and sudden destruction comes upon them, may God give us grace that we may know ourselves. The Gospel further reads, And he entered into the temple and began to cast out them that sold, saying unto them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the second part of our Gospel, where the Lord takes hold of matters in earnest with his powerful hand, when he goes into the temple and casts out those who bought and sold there. For the first part was nothing but an admonition and incentive unto faith. Here the Lord now tells us what the temple of God is, and quotes passages from the scriptures, and especially from the prophet Isaiah chapter 56, where God says, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. You, however, have made it a house of merchandise. This is a strong passage which the prophet utters, for all peoples, for all Gentiles, is against the Jews who trusted in the temple of God at Jerusalem and thought that this material building in Jerusalem would stand forever and that it was impossible for God to demolish this temple or destroy this city. The word of God does not lie. For this reason they also murdered Stephen because he spoke against that holy place and they said, Acts chapter 6, Jesus shall destroy this place, and shall change the customs which Moses delivered unto us. And they said, Have not the prophets praised this house? And Christ himself says here, That it is a house of prayer, and you apostles say he will destroy it. But we must rightly understand this expression, that the city of Jerusalem, the temple, and the people should remain until the time of Christ. With this agree all the prophets who have given all things into the hands of Christ, as he would then dispose of it, so it should be and remain. Hence the passage in Isaiah goes no further until the times of Christ, as also all the prophets say, that after that there shall come a kingdom extending over the whole world, as in Malachi chapter 1 we read, 
For from the rising of the sun and to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the Gentiles, saith Jehovah of hosts. Here the prophet speaks of the spiritual kingdom of Christ, who shall build himself a house of prayer as extensive as the whole world. It is true that God himself has established the temple of Jerusalem, not because it consisted of beautiful stones and costly buildings, or because it was consecrated by bishops, as at a time men employ with such foolery and juggling tricks, but God himself had consecrated and sanctified it with his word when he said, This house is my house, for his word was preached in it. Now, wherever God's word is preached, there is God's own true house, there God most certainly dwells with his grace. Wherever his gospel is, there is a house of prayer. There men shall and may truly pray, and God will also hear their prayer, as Christ says in John 16. If you shall ask anything of the Father, he will give it you in my name. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be made full. Here again, where the word is not found, there the devil has full sway. That we have imitated the Jews and built so many churches would be well enough if we had done it in order that the word of God might be preached there. For where the word goes, there God is present and looks down from heaven and pours out his grace. Therefore he says to the Jews here, I will not that you should make out of my house a den of robbers. For there were money changers in it who sold sheep and oxen that strangers might buy them for their offerings in divine service. Why then does he call it a den of robbers? Surely he gives it a scandalous name. He does it, however, because they no longer appreciate the house as the house of God, but as a market house. That is, the priests did not inquire how the word of God was preached in it, although they sang, they babbled, and read the prophets and Moses. But God cares nothing for such a murmuring of psalms. That belongs to children. They did just as our priests and monks do now, who have also made dens of robbers of our churches and cloisters, and have preached poison and held masses only that the people might give them money and presents for them, holding that they might thus fill their stomachs. They made the church a market house in which they carried on their idle talk, corrupted and destroyed the sheep of God's pastures by their scandalous false doctrine, that it may well be called a robber's den for the soul. This title we should write on all churches in which the gospel is not preached, for there they mock God, destroy souls, banish the pure word, and establish dens of murder. For he who listens to their words must die. Oh, how shamefully we have been deceived! Now, however, we shall praise God that this word again brings us life, drives out the murderers, and teaches us how to pray aright. For an honest heart must pray, not with the mouth, but with the heart. Thus we have heard the second part of our gospel, how Christ drove out the merchants that pandered to base appetites and made room for his word. It would be a good thing in this same way to cleanse our cloisters and turn them into schools or preaching places. If this is not done, they will be and continue to be nothing but dens of robbers. For if Christ calls his own house a den of robbers, how much more will our churches and temples, not consecrated by God, be called dens of robbers? I have often requested you to pray God to turn his wrath and restrain the devil now in the world. For you have undoubtedly heard of the great calamity, how many have been slain in the insurrection of the Peasants' War. 
We fear they have all been lost, for God requires obedience and has himself pronounced the sentence in Matthew 26, For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. The devil has taken possession of the world. Who knows when our turn will come? Therefore let us pray that God's kingdom may come and Christians may be multiplied, that he send wise and intelligent ministers to care for the people and listen to their wants. He who knows the gift of God prays for others who do not have yet heard the word. It is high time to do so. Well, wherever this calamity begins and prevails, that the people maliciously despise the day God visits us with his word and grace, for the sake of the belly and a little temporal benefit and advantage, there must follow as a consequence of such treatment the final punishment and wrath of God, who will utterly destroy them, remove the foundation of their trust, and overthrow the country and the people, so that both temporal and eternal interests go down together. For how shall he otherwise treat us because of our scandalous ingratitude for his great love and mercy, which he publicly declared unto us by his gracious visitation? How shall or can he do more for us, while we with wantonness and defiance spurn his help and ever struggle and strive after wrath and destruction? For if those are not free of punishment who transgress the law and sin against the Ten Commandments, how much less will he permit those to go unpunished who blaspheme and despise the gospel of his grace, seeing the law by far does not bring as many good things as the gospel? If we will not wish to enjoy this happy day which he gives us unto grace and our salvation, he can also instead permit us to see and experience nothing but the dark and terrible night of all affliction and misfortune. And since we will not hear this precious word and the proclamation of peace, we will be forced to hear the devil's cry of murder ring in our ears from every direction. Now is the time for us to know the day, and well employ the rich and golden year while the annual fair is before our very doors and acknowledge that he has severely punished us. If we neglect it and allow it to pass, we can never hope for a better day or expect any peace, for the Lord, who is the Lord of peace, will be with us no longer. But if Christ will no longer be with us, our hope will vanish, and wherever this beloved guest is rejected and his Christians no longer tolerated, government, peace, and everything shall perish. For he too desires to eat with us, to rule, and to provide bountifully. However, he desires also to be known as such a Lord, in order that we may be thankful to him and also permit this guest and his Christians to eat with us and give him his due tribute. If not, we will then be forced to give it to another, who will so thank and reward us for it that we shall not be able to retain a bite of bread or a penny in peace. But the world will not believe this, just as the Jews also would not believe it until they experienced it and faith came to their assistance. For God has ordained that this Christ shall be Lord and King upon the earth, under whose feet he has put all things, and whoever would have peace and good days must be kind and obedient to him, or he will be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel, as it says in Psalm 2. Again from our text, And he entered into the temple and began to cast out those who sold, saying unto them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Here he shows the aim of his great activity and what concerns him most of all, which was also the cause of his weeping. It is indeed a terrible history that he who so recently wept out of a great sympathy and compassion so soon should change and come forth in great anger. For our beloved Lord burns with great devotion and zeal, 
and he goes into the temple as in a storm and strikes with his uplifted arm as the lord of the temple, of course with an excellent and warm spirit by which he is moved, beholding the chief cause of distress and the destruction of which he spoke and over which he wept, namely, that the chief government, which should be God's own and be called his temple, is all perverted and desolate. God's word and true worship entirely suppressed and corrupted, even by those who would be leaders and teachers of the people on account of their disgraceful greed and their own glory. He would say by this, Yes, it is this, that will completely bring on the calamity and make an end of everything among this people. Therefore, as merciful and compassionate as he showed himself to be to the poor multitude of people who were so wretchedly misled to their destruction, so great was the anger he showed against those who are the cause of this destruction. Otherwise, he did not often resort to physical force and cause an uproar, as he does here, so that it is a strange act for an excellent and kind man, so full of love. But the cause of it is the great and powerful zeal and fervency of spirit, which sees whence all affliction and sorrow come, namely because the true worship of God is abolished and the name of God is so blasphemed that it is used merely for a show. For the temple and the whole priesthood were ordained for the purpose of enforcing God's word, to praise his grace and mercy, and so forth, and to testify to this and thank him for his word by an external worship of offerings. However, they did not teach praise and thanksgiving to God, but instead they perverted it into the doctrine of monks and works, so that with such offerings one merited the grace of God, and if they only offered a great deal, God would give them heaven and every good thing on earth. And hence they built their hopes for everything, which they ought to look for out of pure grace and mercy of God, on their own works and merits. And besides, they were misled so far in the devil's name that their avarice set up there in the temple tables for bankers and counters for traders in doves and all kinds of cattle used for offerings, so that those coming from distant lands and cities could find enough there to purchase, or if they had no money, they might barter for or borrow it, so that there might be by all means as many and as great offerings as possible. Thus, under the name of divine worship, the true worship of God was overthrown and rooted out. And they substituted for God's grace and goodness their own merits, and for his free gift their own works, which he was obliged to accept from us and thank us for them, and allow himself to be treated as an idol, compelled to do what pleases us, be angry or laugh just as we wish it, and besides satiate their outrageous greed by such idolatrous doings, and without any sense of shame carry on a public annual fair. Therefore Christ is justly angry at such desecration of his temple by those bloated misers, who do not only despise and forsake the true worship of God, but also pervert it and trample it under their feet. And thus they truly make out of the temple which God ordained for the purpose of teaching the people the word of God and guiding them to heaven, nothing but a den of robbers, where nothing but the destruction and murder of immortal souls take place, because they silence God's word, through which alone souls can be saved, and instead they are fed on the devil's lies, and so forth. This is truly the chief sin and principal cause, why the Jews with their temple and all they had deserved to go to destruction and ruin. For as they destroyed the kingdom of God itself, he will no longer build up their kingdom for them. Wherefore he says, because you go to work, and instead of my kingdom you build the kingdom of Satan, so will I also work against you, and will destroy everything utterly that I have built for you. 
This is an example he began to do on that very day when he rushed among them in the temple as his last public act before his death, which after his departure the Romans would effectually complete. Namely, they with all they had would be totally swept away as he cleanses his temple of them that they may no more possess either their worship, temple, nor priesthood, country, or people. He has, God be praised, even commenced to overthrow our idols and specters and popery's abominable merchandise of perfidy, and to purify his church through the gospel, also as a prelude, that it may be seen that he will also make an end of them, as before our eyes they have begun already to fall. And they must daily fall more and more, and they will be much more horribly dashed to the earth and everlastingly destroyed than the Jews were destroyed and exterminated because theirs is such a still more shameful abomination. This shall first properly begin when the gospel has departed on account of their disgraceful, horrible blasphemy, but it will finally come to an end on the last day and be completely and forever destroyed. Let Germany, which prays to God, now has the gospel beware, that she may not meet the same fate, as it already so strongly everywhere indicates she will. For we dare not think that the contempt and unthankfulness which are gaining control among us as great as among the Jews, will remain unpunished. After that he will let the godless world complain and cry. If the gospel had not come, such things would not have come upon us, just like the Jews at Jerusalem blamed all their calamities on the preaching of the gospel. And they themselves, at the risk of their own necks, prophesied that if Christ with his gospel should continue, the Romans would come and take away their place and nation. And afterward also, even the Romans blame their destruction to this new God and new doctrine. Just as it is at present, since the gospel has appeared, things have never been right. And thus it will also go with the world, as its people despise and persecute God's word and become so hardened and blinded, they will blame no one as the cause and merit of their destruction, but the precious gospel itself, which nevertheless alone preserves, thank God, what is still preserved, Otherwise all things would long since lay in one common heap of ruins, and yet it must bear the blame for everything that the devil and his clans transact. Because these people continue to blaspheme and will not recognize what our sins deserve and the grace and mercy which we have in the gospel, God must thus repay such blasphemers, so that they become their own prophets and for a double wickedness receive a double reward. This premonition has already gone forth, except that it is yet withheld on account of the faithful few, just as he beforehand admonished the Jews by this example, when he cast those that sold and bought out of the temple, and afterwards went into the temple himself, and finally taught until the day of his death, and yet for a time withheld as long as he could, and afterwards by his apostles, until they would no longer tolerate them. So now we who cleave to Christ restrain punishment as long as we live. But when these two shall lay down their heads, then the world will realize what it once had. May the Lord have mercy on us. Amen. This has been a presentation of Classical Lutheran Preaching from the Sermons of Martin Luther, the John Nicholas Lenker Collection of 1905, and reprinted by Baker Bookhouse in 1983.